Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to come before you to hear you speak to each and every one of us through your word, by your spirit. We ask that you will forgive us for our sins, the things that we have committed um, willfully and ignorantly, Father, that you will continue, we ask that you will continue to lead us in repentance and that this morning as we hear your word, your spirit will convict us accordingly, that we will be attentive, that you will help us to stay focused uh, during this time um, and that we may hear what we may hear. Um, and that we won't allow any distractions um, to keep us um, from glorifying you and to responding appropriately uh, to your commands and to your will. We ask this, Father, for your glory by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so if you would, go ahead and open to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapters 23 and 24. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back, as always. And as always, uh, if you take one, uh, please keep it. So last week, we looked at, at uh, how David began his wilderness experience as he fled from Saul, uh, being sent away from Saul by God. And in doing so, David exhibited his humility in his actions, his submissiveness to God's word, even when God's word, obedience to it, meant that he put his life at greater risk, and how David himself would be a stronghold, as God was to him, uh, David would be a stronghold for Abiathar after the priests were slain. Now this week, we will look at a key characteristic of God that allowed David to behave this way, to put his trust in God, and that he could live as God demanded him to. This characteristic is what you and I also must understand and learn to trust. For all the promises of Scripture, they all rely on this characteristic. Without it, we can't truly rely on the promises given to us. And that characteristic is, of course, the sovereignty of God. That is the power, the authority of God. In chapters 23 and 24, we'll see David trusting God's sovereignty in two ways. Uh, That's in prayer, as he seeks guidance from God, as well as in waiting, in waiting for deliverance from evil, as well as waiting for the promises of God to be fulfilled. David's belief in God's sovereignty is evidence in the actions he takes in these two chapters, as well as being personally confessed by David as you read his psalms. His psalms are full of the sovereignty of God. So let's go ahead, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 14 of chapter 23. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Calah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Calah, for I will give to the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Calah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Calah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Calah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself by entering the town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Calah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar, the priest, Bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Calah to destroy the city on my account. 
Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as his servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servants. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Cala surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Cala. And they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Cala, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul saw him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So David's assistance is requested. The Philistines are raiding the threshing floors of the village of Cala. And David, as a faithful man of God, as, as we talked about last week, he recognizes military action to be a religious affair. And so he inquires of the Lord. And he does so uh, three times, twice initially to see if he should attack the Philistines, um, and then a third time to see if those whom David had just rescued would actually hand him over to Saul. And he's probably doing that also because he doesn't want the, the, the people of Cala to face the same uh, fate that the priests of Nob faced, as we read about last week. So he's probably trying to deliver them from uh, the hand of Saul. And so in doing so, because David inquired, because David prayed to God, he's given direction in both instances. And as such, he preserves his own life, the life of his men, and those of Cala. Now, David's consistent desire to seek the Lord's will is a sign of his spiritual vitality and relationship with Yahweh. This is something that Saul lacked. As we read during Saul's um, kingship earlier, and as he continues to do so, Saul was not a man of prayer. David is clearly a man of prayer. He is a cunning man. He is an intelligent man. He's a genius military strategist, but he doesn't rely on his own abilities. He doesn't take matters into his own hands, typically. Rather, he completely and utterly relies on Yahweh and the direction given by God. Ultimately, what he's doing is he's trusting in the sovereignty of God. So when we pray, when we inquire, just as David did, we do so ultimately because God is sovereign, because of his sovereign power. Power. Some might say, if God is fully sovereign, and he has decreed all things, he has ordained all things, well, why pray? Well, why pray if he is not sovereign? God not only ordains the end of all things, but he also ordains the means by which those ends come to be, right? Now, we could venture down this cave and and try to figure out the particulars of how God's sovereign will and the will of the human spirit work and how that tension exists, but if we do that, we might not ever come back. So, So let's stick with the plain teaching of Scripture and see what Scripture tells us about this affair. First, let's consider Hannah. We've talked about Hannah. That's how we started out for 1 Samuel was with Hannah. She had no son, but it was in God's will, in God's sovereign plan, for Samuel to be born and to be a judge and to be a prophet of Yahweh. But yet, how did that come about? How did Samuel come to be? How did Samuel come to be a boy dedicated to the Lord? By Hannah's prayer, as well as God's sovereignty. Perhaps most importantly, Actually, most importantly, for sure, consider Christ. Consider what Hebrews 5, 7 says about Christ. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, that's the Father, who is able to save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverence. That's not because Jesus was only human. Jesus is fully human, fully God. So the Son of God, the one who took on flesh, the one who created all things, but yet lived as you and I, who was tempted as you and I, yet was without sin and was fully God, even he himself prayed. And he didn't just pray for the sake of prayer. He prayed with tears and loud cries. He prayed emphatically and emotionally. So if the Son of David the one who saved all of us, who reconciled all of us, who bore our sins on the cross, if he himself, the one who laid down his life and and took it up again, if he himself prayed, how much more should we pray to God? David was keen to be. He had the Spirit of God in him, yet he prayed and he constantly prayed. He constantly inquired of Yahweh. He knew the promises of God, but despite those promises, he still prayed for deliverance. He still prayed. He still engaged with God. Just as Jesus, he knew how all things were going to work out, but yet Jesus himself prayed. Saul, for a time, he had the Spirit of God with him as well, but yet he was not faithful as David was. See, those who are in in right relationship with God, which Saul was not, but David is, those who are in right relationship with God, we will inquire, we will pray to him regularly. And we will do so consistently. Because if you're in right relationship with God, your desire is going to be to talk to him. Your desire is going to be to want to be with him. Because there's so much pain in this life. And when you're in right relationship with God, you see the brokenness of this world as Jesus saw the brokenness of the world in front of Lazarus' tomb. Jesus, who knew, I'm going to raise Lazarus up, But this isn't how it's supposed to be. And he wept before the tomb. Likewise, we who are in right relationship with God, we know he's coming back. We know who wins in the end. We know how it's all going to turn out. But there's still suffering. There's still death. This isn't how it's supposed to be. Not only do we um, desire because of the pain that's in the life, but because of the sin, specifically our own sin that's in our life. The more righteous we become, the more aware we become of our sin and how, how, how the small sins are more significant than we ever thought. And the Almighty, he's like a loving father who, who you see walking down the street with his hand hanging down, hoping that his toddler son or daughter will reach up to grab that hand. The father, he hangs his hand down for our benefit. It's not for his. It, he, he, prayer for us is like us extending our tiny little hand to be enveloped by his giant hand so that we can be comforted, we can be steadied, we can be led, we can be protected, and most importantly, we can be reminded of who we are and who our Father is, especially in times that we find ourselves today. I think we need that more than ever. If you want your prayers answered, right? You might be thinking, well, I pray, but they don't get answered. Well, if you want them to be answered, I'll, I'll tell you the secrets, and this isn't so much of a secret. If you read your scripture, you eventually come across 1 John five fourteen, where John writes, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that we, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, all right? And, and hearing us means that he's, he's going to do something about it, right? He's going to answer. And I'm not just talking about silence, but he will answer prayers if we ask according to his will and not our own. So if you want to know what his will is, because that's often the next question, well, what's the will? What's the will of the Father in my life? Well, then know his word so your mind can be renewed and live your life as a sacrifice in obedience to it. This is Romans 12, 1, 2. 
Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, meaning you're going to, as you live, as you walk through life, you're going to die to self and live in obedience to his word. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. We have to be mindful of the worldviews that we adopt. We have to be mindful of the worldviews that we support. We've got to be mindful of the hashtags that we support. There's wisdom there. Do not be conformed to this world. Just because something is popular on social media and just because evangelical leaders jump on the bandwagon, you have to use discernments. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How? Uh, That's by the word of God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And remember, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who enters the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father. You want to know the will of the Father? Don't have your mind be renewed by the... By the word, as you live sacrificially in obedience to his word, and don't be conformed to the world, and you will know what his will is, and you will be able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. And we do this because God is sovereign. Therefore, when we have decisions to be made, whether they are big or small, in in the perspective of God, who is almighty, who is everlasting, whose size cannot be fathomed because it cannot be measured, and the perspective of God, what is big to us is not big to God. Therefore, if it's not big to him, it can't be small to him either. So whether it is big or small to us, let's lift it up to him. Let us pray. Let us inquire of God. Do any of you lack wisdom? Do you desire wisdom for the times of which we find ourselves today? Wisdom in the midst of injustice? Wisdom for raising your kids? Wisdom for voting or how to live? In, 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 in light of how the elections turn out this fall. Wisdom for how you should live and act in the midst of a pandemic. Wisdom on how to handle and, and understand death and suffering, which seems to be around us all the more as the days go on. Do you desire that wisdom? Well, then pray. James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and that's all of us, all right? no one here lacks wisdom, we all lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So when it says generously, God, God is saying, look, I have the wisdom. I have the wisdom you seek, the wisdom you need. You need to ask for it. And don't feel like you need to do something to earn this wisdom. I'm going to give it to you generously, without reproach. Yes, you sent, and yes, last time I gave you wisdom, you ignored it. But keep coming back, because I will give it to you generously. So if you lack wisdom, which you do, go to the Father. Ask him for it. We're going to read Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2 gives us the benefits of wisdom, especially for a time such as this. We're going to read the whole, the whole chapter here. And just pay attention to this. And I would encourage you to perhaps look at Proverbs 2 later on and just meditate on it and just consider the benefits of Proverbs 2 um, in regards to the wisdom, uh, the benefits of wisdom. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, like make it a priority, like you work hard for the paycheck so you can bring bread and bacon home, do the same thing for wisdom. 
and in fathers, do the same thing for your kids, right? Life is school. school. School's part of life, but your kids learn how to live life. They learn what's important in life by how you lead them. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the uprights. All right, so his wisdom and understanding comes from his word. Consider Psalm 119. Read Psalm 119 if you want in light of this. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. There's a lot of talk about what justice is nowadays. Scripture tells you, God doesn't hide what justice is. Justice is not partial. There's no qualifier for justice. Justice is justice. Read the scriptures, go to God. He will show you what justice is. Look to the cross for justice. Where was I? I'll just I'll start here. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, which there is no lack of nowadays, who forsake the paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil. Men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So wisdom, if you don't listen to wisdom, it's going to lead to the house of folly, the house of unfaithfulness, the house of adultery. Wisdom guards and protects us in faithfulness. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So we pray because we need wisdom and we pray because God is sovereign. And because God is sovereign, not only do we pray to him in all matters, but because he's sovereign, we also wait for God. Let's continue on by reading the rest of chapter 23, and we'll see an example of waiting on God during times of hardship or during a trial. Starting in verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be keen over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakela, which is south of Jishimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there. For it is told to me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. 
Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in their Arabah, to the south of Jishamon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain, and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. So sovereignty is why we wait. And before we dive into this, let's back up to uh, verse 14. At the end of verse 14, we, we see that Saul is seeking David every day, right? But notice why Saul is unable to catch him. Yes, David is cunning, as Saul admitted himself. But that's not why Saul couldn't catch him. Ultimately, despite David's abilities, Saul couldn't catch David because God did not give him into his hand. See, the credit there goes to God. The sovereignty of God here, once again, is at play, and it's highlighted by the author of Samuel. It wasn't David's abilities or his prowess to escape Saul, though God certainly used David's experience and training to help him. Ultimately, though, it was God who delivered David from Saul. So in this deliverance, as David is being chased, uh, notice who goes to him. Notice who goes to encourage him. It's Jonathan, right? David's good friend, right? And we, we, we spoke about how the relationship had to end because of Saul's threats against uh, David. And this is the last time that David and Jonathan will see each other, though Jonathan is anticipating that one day he'll be at the right hand of, uh, of David's throne. But as we will read as we continue through Samuel, that won't be the case. But Jonathan goes to David, and why? Well, to encourage him. And how does he encourage David? By reminding David, ultimately, of God's sovereignty. By reminding David of the promise that God has given him. You're the next king to be. This is going to happen. Yes, my father is pursuing you. He is on you. But don't fear. God will deliver you. So, question for us is, do we find ourselves in the midst of a trial? When we are, we should look for encouragement. And when you do look for encouragement, look to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look for those who, like Jonathan and David, were men after God's own heart. And in doing so, you look to the promises of God. David's, Jonathan's encouragement to David was rooted in the promise of God. It wasn't rooted in just how they felt about the situation. It was rooted in a promise and something given to them by God. And we can only look to the promises of God for encouragement only if God is sovereign. If he wasn't sovereign, again, what much hope would we have? But thankfully, he is sovereign. Consider Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 13, when God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning... And from ancient things not yet done. Meaning God, he knows what's going to happen. Not because he knows it, but because he's ordained it. He has power and authority over it. It's, it's not like some form of open theism where it's a calculated risk. And God has his great wisdom and he can figure things out and he can anticipate. No, he knows it because he ordains it. He knows what's going to happen. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. 
He's the one that brings it to an end. It's God, it's not people, it's God who does it. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. Who brings it to pass? Again, it's not people, it's God. God uses people, yes, but ultimately it's God who does it. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness, it is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So this encouragement from Jonathan for David is needed. As this meeting between Jonathan and David is one way of God preparing David for the trial ahead. When we experience trials, again, we need to consider what God has done. One, we look back to what he has done, right? The Israelites will look back to the Exodus events. We, we can look back to the Exodus event, absolutely. But we also, most importantly, more significantly, look back to the resurrection, which is preceded by the cross, right? We look back to the resurrection. That's a cornerstone of our hope and faith. And based off of the resurrection, we can look forward with confidence and certainty of what is going to happen. So for the Ziphites, the Ziphites, they're coming, they're betraying David into the hands of Saul. And this is the trial that David is going into that he needs the encouragement for. And when we read Psalm 54, um, which David wrote during this experience, we see the trust that David puts into God, having recently been encouraged to stay the course by Jonathan. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 54, which he, he wrote when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? David writes, O God, save me by your name, and vindicate me by your might, by your power. O God, hear my prayer. Right? Again, David's praying because of the power of God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. That's the Ziphites. Ruthless men seek my life. That's Saul and his men. They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This psalm, this prayer of David, is perhaps the prayer, ultimately, that gets answered for David. Right? Saul and his men, they're, they're, they're coming up on, on David. They're catching up to him. They're about to capture him. And there go the Philistines raiding Israel. A timely event for David, thus forcing Saul to end his pursuit because he has to go and take care of the Philistines. So once again, by God's sovereign hand, David is delivered. Now let's continue and read chapter 24 and see that not only in hardship are we to wait, but we are to wait for the promises of God to be fulfilled as well. And we'll read the whole chapter. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. 
And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand and the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So after fighting the Philistines, Saul returns to pursue David once he learns of his new whereabouts. And in this pursuit, Saul goes into a cave to uh, relieve himself. Now, in the Hebrew, uh, it literally means to cover himself, which is a Hebrew uh, euphemism. Um, this is most likely means that he's uh, doing a number two, not a number, number one. This is the same language that is used uh, by Eglon's servants in Judges 3.24 after Ehud had killed Eglon. Remember, he stabbed uh, Eglon with the sword, and, and Eglon was a a big dude, apparently, because the sword gets stuck in his gut, and he has to leave the sword in the gut. Um, and he locks the door behind him, and the servants try to go in, but the door is locked, and they assumed that Eglon was relieving himself in the well-ventilated room. It's well-ventilated for a reason. So Saul is in a very exposed position, all right? So, the, you know, when a man, number one, number two, number two is much more exposed. He's in a very exposed position, so much so that David's men are like, this has to be the act of God. I mean, what are the chances that the person pursuing David has to do his business? Not only does he have to do his business now, but he's doing it in our cave, like right where we are at. He has no idea. He is, his men aren't there with him because he's doing his business, and his, he's caught with his pants down, literally. Like this seems to us like Yahweh is saying, here you go, here's the opportunity. And so the men, they, they give David a prophecy, but we don't know where this prophecy comes from. We, we don't find this prophecy in Scripture Maybe it's made up, or maybe uh, his men are using a prophecy uh, aimed at non-Israelites and misapplying it to, to Saul. Either way, they're encouraging uh, David to go ahead um, and kill Saul. And David goes up to Saul, but instead of killing him, he just cuts off a rope, the corner of the rope. A small thing, right? Simple, not a big deal. 
But why did it bother David so much, right? Verse 5, afterward, David's heart struck him, right? His heart was probably aching. He felt guilty of what he had done. This is the same language that David uh, uses in 2 Samuel, that's use of David, excuse me, in 2 Samuel 24.10, after he does a census. David's heart struck him. And you might recall the significance of Saul tearing the corner off of Samuel's robe back in chapter 15. Remember, on the corner of the robes, especially for the kings and for the priests, would be tassels. And the tassels were meant to remind people of God's commands, of how he wants them to live. And so that way, when they look down at the tassels, they think of God and how they want to live. It's ever before them. So this is probably the same thing for kings. So by David cutting off this corner, he's also tearing off the tassel, and it makes the robe unworthy of a king. And it could also be a symbolic reference to, you're not worthy to be king. You're not worthy to wear this robe. So in verse 6, David expresses his grief about doing such a thing against the Lord's anointed. Now let me clarify something on this, um, on the idea of not touching the Lord's anointed. There's a very toxic, very unhealthy understanding of this verse in relation to pastors today in our church. I've been at a church where this was used for a pastor who was acting immorally, and the excuse from the elders were, well, can't touch the Lord's anointed. And they would use this reference out of context. I am not untouchable. I, I am not King Saul. We, we, pastors are not, most often are not chosen by lots. We're not chosen by a prophet coming in off the street and anointing some young man saying, hey, this is going to be your next pastor. Pastors are often chosen through a fallible process by fallible people seeking fallible candidates to fill a role, right? So mistakes happen. Men fall away from the faith. The pastor's acting immorally. Churches, especially churches that are congregationally uh, ruled and elder-led, they need to remove the pastor. Like, that needs to happen. Pastors are not untouchable. We're called to be above reproach, but that does not mean that we are unaccountable. All right, so I just want to correct that understanding. Pastors, they're not King Saul. All right, we don't wait for God to strike down a pastor. You have been given the spirit. This is a priesthood of believers. Men, the the men, the women, especially the elders, the men of the church, especially the elders, are responsible for how the pastor acts and behaves, and they're acting immorally or incompetently. Action needs to be taken by the men. Anyway, just get that out of the way. David's guilt here, it's rooted in his understanding, ultimately, of the promise of God that's given to him by Samuel and as reminded to him by Jonathan. Right? He was just reminded, don't worry, God is going to fulfill his promise and be faithful. But here, David, notice before, David's always inquiring of the Lord. He didn't inquire of the Lord before this, right? He didn't ask, he didn't ask for um, Abiathar to bring the ephod and say, hey, Lord, should I go up and strike Saul now? Is this the opportunity? And maybe for time or whatever reason, he just doesn't inquire of the Lord. He takes actions in his own hands. He takes his own initiative, uncharacteristic behavior of David. And that's why he's struck to the heart of it. But in the actions that follow this, almost kind of like he's repenting of it, but in his actions that follow, ultimately those actions are the right actions. Because him going to Saul like he did, that's him truly trusting in the sovereignty of God and respecting the office that Saul is holding. But he respects the office that Saul is holding, not because of Saul, 
but ultimately because he respects the divine authority that puts Saul there. And David does so, again, because he does trust the sovereignty of God. So as David follows Saul out of the cave, he humbles himself before him. He pays homage. And where Saul was once vulnerable, David now exposes himself. And he could be cut down too, but he, again, is trusting God. And here we have the longest quote of David in 1 Samuel, followed by the longest quote of Saul in 1 Samuel, the two major figures of this book. David eloquently proves to Saul with a piece of cloth in his hand that he's innocent and desiring to do harm. At the same time, David is clear. God is going to be judged between you and I, between the two of them. And so while David is pleading his case, he's not just pleading his case for his innocence, but it's almost like he's trying to save Saul's life. Like, God's given me the kingdom. God's the judge between you and I. I have done you no wrong But yet, if you continue to act out against me, God will be the judge. He will avenge me. He will strike you down. And this action leads Saul to weep and break down, declares David more righteous. And this kind of, in keeping with the saying, is Saul among the prophets. Saul tells David, the kingdom will surely be established in your hands. And at that statement, Saul has David make a vow with him. It's the same vow that David has already made with Jonathan. Right? Don't cut off my offspring. Whatever happens, don't destroy the offspring. Don't wipe the name of my father's house away from the earth. And so David affirms that vow. He's not going to do it. He will not be actively part of wiping away uh, his offsprings. And after they make that vow, David and Saul, they part ways. So just as much as David trusted in God's sovereignty to be delivered from harm, David learned... Though not perfectly, he learned that he needs to trust in God's sovereignty to wait for God's promises on God's time, not his. Right? I, think we, I think it's perhaps easier for us to think, I need to wait through this trial, through this hardship. But what about the promise that God gave you? How long do we need to wait for that? How long do we need to wait for the blessings that the gospel says we ought to have because we call upon his name? We must be careful not to hold God to some made-up timetable. God's time is his own time. It's not like our time. Remember when you were a child how time moved? It didn't move fast at all. But now, it's, it, 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 just, it, keeps, it keeps accelerating, right? It's, it's, once something starts in motion, unless something comes along and stops, it's going to keep going. The time keeps going faster as we get older. God, we're like, we're still children. We're grown up, but in God's perspective, we're, ch- we're still children when it comes to looking at time. Like, we think time's, like, God, we're waiting, but God's like, don't worry. I'm not going to delay, and my return is imminent. It is near. We need to keep that perspective. So when we ask how long, let us be like the martyrs of Revelation 6, and God says a little bit longer, let us be patient in our waiting. And as we wait, we must be faithful as we stay the course. We must not take things into our own hands as David did with Saul. We see this when played out in a variety of ways, and these are just a few examples. You might be single, and you're waiting for that one. How long till you find the one who walks with God, who knows God? Maybe you're unemployed, and you need that job. Your marriage is unhealthy, it's broken, 
How long until the gospel fixes it? How long until the Spirit of God changes the heart of your unrepentant husband or unrepentant wife or your unrepentant children? Pastors struggle with this with church growth. My church isn't growing, but that church is growing. Well, why is that? Do I need to do something or do I need to continue to trust in the sovereignty of God? In all these situations and more, we don't simply sit around and wait, right? When, when God says, be still, he's talking about like, be still as in calm down, know who I am. But we're still called to move. We're still called to walk. We're still called to be active in accordance to his will. We don't compromise our testimony, our integrity to get what we want. We don't compromise our faith just so we can get with that girl or get with that boy. We don't engage in missionary dating thinking, well, if I date this boy or this girl, surely they'll come to Christ. No, we wait for the one who's already right with God. We don't compromise on the job that might cause us to leave our church behind and not be actively involved in the body of Christ, leading us to um, be led into dangerous situations in regards to our faith. We wait for the job that allows us to continue to be faithful to God. We stay faithful and we allow God to direct our steps as we faithfully serve him, in obedience to his word as we pray to him regularly. But beyond these things, right, all these things I've just talked about, if you're in these situations, it might feel like it's a big thing, but ultimately, in the scheme of eternity, those things are small things, very small things. Because most importantly, we need to practice this mindset with our sin and with temptation. That's our biggest issue. Your biggest issue is nothing of this world. Your biggest issue is how you're going to face God the Father on Judgment Day. When Jesus returns, how is he going to judge you? How are you going to deal with your sin? 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Just as Saul was prowling the wilderness looking for David, the devil does the same for you and I. Consider Genesis 4.7. God speaking to Cain before Cain kills his younger brother. God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching out the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Just as Saul is at the door of David's cave, so is sin at yours. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Wait. Be patient. We have to trust in the sovereignty of God. And when we do so, and in doing so, we need to listen to what Peter says as he continues on in 1 Peter 5, 9, 11. Resist him, that's the devil, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is no temptation Right? Paul says this as well. There's no temptation that you're experiencing, have experienced, will experience, that someone else hasn't experienced. Not one. You are not special to where, well, this temptation is unique to me and, well, no one understands. No. There are people out there who do. This is why we have the body of Christ. It's why it's a gift to us. So we resist the devil. We resist those questions. Did God really say? Right? The question that started all of this to begin with. Did God really say you shouldn't eat this? Did he? Did God really say you shouldn't date this person? Did God really say you shouldn't engage in this lifestyle? Did God really say whatever? 
right? Whenever we try to rationalize obedience to the word of God, with the word of God, that's what, we're, that's what the devil's doing. Did God really say? Right? And when we do that, who are we being conformed to? The world or to God? To the world. So we need to renew our minds. We need to resist him. And we need to trust that God will, in his grace, he will confirm us, he will strengthen us, and ultimately establish us in him. So in that moment when temptation feels the greatest, whatever that temptation it may be, whether like, like an addict, if you're, you want to take that hit, you want to take that sip, you want to do that thing, whatever that sin is, when that temptation is the greatest, resist him. Do not act out. If you're going to act out, you act out towards God. You lament towards him. You scream to him. You cry to him as Jesus with loud cries like he prayed. Like at Gethsemane, if, it's not, if this is your will, so be it. But if it is not, let me know, what, let me know it. Let, let, let there be another way. Pray likewise. We have to go to him in prayer. We have to go to his word and be reminded and encouraged of the promises he has given to us through his son. And it is hard. Right? This is not like, an, I understand, it's easy for me to be up here and talk about this. It's easy for you to hear it. When that temptation comes, and you know it, because if you're like me, you've done this, you have failed, you've stumbled, you've experienced temptation that is strong. It's hard. It's very hard at times. So much so that you can feel like a rock that's being squeezed very hard, but you're being squeezed like a sponge because at the same time, you're weeping before God because you need him and you need deliverance. And if we can learn to trust God like that, day in and day out, then when death comes, we'll be ready. And that's important because if there's anything that we've learned with 2020 is that death comes for us all, especially for us Americans. We, I think we have been ignorant and arrogant of our well-being. Celebrity status, which has been evident this year, our wealth, medical care, nothing will keep the Grim Reaper from calling your name. The only thing that will do that is if Christ himself returns beforehand. And we can pray for that, and we should pray for that. But if we can learn to wait in obedience to Christ and trust in his sovereignty while we still have breath in our bodies, then when we expire with our last breath, we'll be able to do so with full confidence. And we'll be able to do so without fear. Remember we talked about this last week? Who does Jesus reveal himself to? Right? He doesn't reveal himself to the world. They can know his word, but it's not to those who, who simply hear him. It's those who obey his commandments that God reveals himself to. So you want to know the person whose face you're going to see before death? Obey his commandments now. So let us be faithful in how we live and let us trust in God by going to him for help in time of need. And we do all this because God is sovereign. And we do it in light of the words of Hebrews 4.14-16. through 16. Since then, we have a great, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence, we could do this because he's sovereign, right? We could do this because he's sovereign, his promises are true. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So this is why we do communion. Communion, like the word of God, is a gift to us. Communion does not save us, but it reminds us. It reminds us of the promises 
of the gospel. It reminds us of what is to come. It reminds us, it calls us to look back, to consider, to recall what God has done long ago. It calls us to, recons- to consider the Exodus events. It calls us to consider our baptism, how God has worked in our own lives. It causes us to consider the work of Christ, the blood that he shed for our forgiveness of sins, and as such, the empty tomb, the tomb that is empty and will be permanently empty because Jesus has been risen because, again, God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He has power over death. And that power, the same power that raised Christ from the grave is the same power that will raise us from the grave or it will be the same power that will call us up in the air when Christ returns. And that's why we do communion here. So we can, be, we can have that taste in our mouths as we go throughout the week so that when we're tempted and we see Saul at the door and we're like, boy, I could do something about this, we're like, no, I'm going to wait because I know the promises of God. I can still taste the juice on my lips, the crunchiness of the cracker in my mouth, and I know the gospel and I know what is coming. So I will wait on the Lord and I will be faithful to his word. So we're going to go ahead and um, enter into communion at this time. Um, so we have Zoom should be coming up here at some point. So I'm going to try to talk through my, does this work? This is kind of weird. Is that better? Can you guys still hear me? Does that work? Oh, there we go. Um, so here, com- communion here is going to be done um, the way we do it. If you are a believer, you are welcome. You do not have to be a member of this church to partake of communion. do encourage you to be baptized. You do not have to be baptized to come to the table. However, if you are not baptized, I would ask, why not? Um, and let's have that conversation. Um, and before we come up here, uh, you know, I will serve Nate. He will be playing music. Um, take a moment to pray. All right, I'm going to bless the elements after bless the elements. Take a moment to pray. Ask God to speak to you to see if you have um, just any sins, any, anything that you might not be aware of, or maybe you are holding on to something, um, and you need to give that up. Um, give it up. If you can't, stay away from the table. We do this weekly. We do this regularly. Uh, and if you, if you miss a week, hey, you miss a week. All right? That's okay. Communion, it's a gift. It's, it's a blessing. But at the same time, it's better for you to, not, um, to, to abstain from it than to come under judgment. So take the time to consider where you are with God and how you've been faithful and, and how you are walking um, with him. Um, we do Zoom. Uh, is it up? It is. There we go. We got a couple. All right. Uh, so we do Zoom because we want people who are unable to come because of the pandemic to partake. And so we do Zoom because we understand communion. It's a corporate thing. It's like baptism. We need the body of Christ to see who our brothers and sisters are. So when we do this, we are reminding each other, calling each other, hey, walk with me, be with me. And so uh, this allows us to have um, one elder oversight over the communion, brothers and sisters to enjoy celebrating the work of Christ uh, together. So at this time, I'm going to go ahead and and pray and we'll begin. Father, thank you for your blessing. Thank you for your word.